Revelation <clears throat> chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. And uh, we want to read, uh, I'm going to read a short portion of it again. Um, if you've been coming for any amount of time, you, uh, you kind of know uh, what our, I guess what our position is on some of these things in the book of Revelation. Um, the uh, opening part of chapter 14 is dealing with a particular group of people. Revelation chapter 14 is dealing with the 144,000. Right? They're mentioned earlier in the book of Revelation. They're mentioned in chapter 7. Same group. In chapter 7, they're mentioned at the beginning of the tribulation. Uh, probably right around the same time that you and I are leaving. We leave before the tribulation begins. You know that, right? We're gone. Thank God for that. We're not staying through the tribulation in spite of what some people teach. But uh, the body of Christ is not going through the tribulation. God is pulling you out before those days of judgment, horrible days of judgment, are coming. As Brother Sal said, uh, our, our country's falling apart. There's no doubt about that. Uh, you see... Um, even like in the days of uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, the handwriting is on the wall. I mean, God has already written it on the walls uh, that judgment is coming. And, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, by the way, one of the last things that became prevalent in Israel just before their demise was open homosexuality in Israel. Sodomites in Israel had built their houses right next to the temple just before the captivity. So that's how open and unashamed, how accepted it had become among God's people, that without any fear, rather than building in some neighborhood far from the temple, there was no fear of building right next to the temple. It was perfectly okay. And that was an indication that uh, when that sin becomes prevalent in a society and accepted in a society, uh, you might as well batten down the hatches because we're getting close to the coming of Jesus Christ. And uh, so the handwriting's on the wall. And as a church, and as, in, and as a church especially, we need to be a people that understand the times that we're living in. It's not a reason for us to be discouraged or to despair in any way. I mean, it's discouraging. It's a shame. Uh, we were in Poland when we read the news, and I'm telling you, it was like we were depressed all day long after we'd seen it. I mean, we were hoping for something different, but really not expecting anything different when the Supreme Court voted. And um, it was just, it's all we talked about for two days over there. It's like just our poor nation and what's coming for our nation. It's not the only reason God will judge this country, but it's certainly one more reason that just an evidence that our nation is falling apart and our leaders have no sense whatsoever, no moral compass whatsoever. They can't tell the difference between good and evil. And um, so that doesn't bode well for the future of democracy. Um, I love our country, but you need to love your Savior more and love the truth more. I mean, I'm, glad, I'm proud to be an American. I am very proud to be an American. But uh, don't put that ahead of anything else. That's not that important compared to the kingdom of God. God has allowed greater nations than America to fall 
when they turned against the Lord Jesus, when they turned against the Lord. And this nation has turned against the Lord for a long time. So um, I don't know how I got off on that, but anyway, um, but anyway, here, uh, oh, what we're talking that we are not going to go through the tribulation. <laughs> so we see it coming. It's obvious that it's coming. But it just uh, lets us know that our redemption draws nigh. You know, we're getting closer and closer to the time of our departure, the time of the coming of Jesus Christ for us. Amen? That's a reason to sing. That's a cause to rejoice, that uh, it's getting closer and closer. Our young people need to be reminded of that on a regular basis. We need to be reminding our young people to get their eyes off the things of this world and remember that the coming of Jesus Christ is, is very, very near. And I hope we could impress that on the hearts of our families. But so Revelation 14 is describing the 144,000, right? And we're we've seen them. We see them twice in the book of Revelation. Once at the beginning of the tribulation, which is we see them in Revelation 7. We're not going to go back there and read that again. But in Revelation chapter 7, they're described on the earth. They're they're definitely on the earth. But here in Revelation chapter 14, it says that they are with the Lord, with the Lamb, with Jesus Christ on Mount Zion. So at the beginning of the tribulation, they're on the earth. At the beginning of the tribulation, I believe, is the time when that 144,000 are awakened. Their eyes are opened. We know that they survive the tribulation. They witness their witnesses unto the Lord and God... Um, protects them, supernaturally protects them from any kind of harm. So their their purpose on the earth is to be a living witness to the truth of God, um, much like the two witnesses that stand in Jerusalem, Moses and Elijah, who stand in Jerusalem and preach. They're going to be 144,000, I think of them as Apostle Paul's, um, 144,000 Apostle Paul's probably scattered around the earth witnessing in all the nations of the earth. What they're going to be preaching uh, would have to be the gospel of the kingdom, but um, the message, we don't have, you know, we don't have the content of the message exactly, but we know that God had them on the earth as witnesses. And here at the, in chapter 14, we see them in heaven. So, and the rest of chapter 14 describes the circumstances that take place at the end of the tribulation. So it's like, it's like a perfect Two perfect bookends. The, this same group at the beginning, and now in chapter 14, the same group at the end of the tribulation. But I want us just to read these few verses that describe this group. And tonight, when I was trying to get ready for this message, it was um, it was an unusual day. It was a very unusual day. Brother Sal knows. Um, we were we were trying to get some things done for him, some printing done for him, and it just seemed like the devil was the devil was just in the middle of everything all day long. Nothing seemed to go right. Eventually, it got done. I hope it got done right. Um, but it was just from morning till night, it just seemed like. And we prayed and spent some time with God this morning and just trusted. Everything is going to go just exactly the way you want it, Lord. But I guess today the Lord wanted it to be unusually difficult because it was difficult almost right up until church time. So I was struggling with this tonight because... I wanted all day just to read and study and pray and, and get ready for this tonight. And But then, I mean, just just before the service, this this sort of just came to my heart tonight for us to consider. 
And as I read through this again, one, one word stood out in this. And it's, it's been blessing my heart ever since I considered it. But we'll read the first five verses. And I want you to see that something that is said about this group of people. Now, a couple of things about them you know are true. These are not Gentiles. These are Jews. These are not people that are part of the body of Christ. They are not people who got saved exactly the same way that you and I get saved. Uh, their salvation is a little different. But um, they are saved, redeemed. They are sealed, protected. Um, and, but there's one thing that's said about them that is uh, really, really a blessing. And we'll, read, we'll just read these first five verses. It says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And remember, that is just made up of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Right? And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And you, rem- you know whose voice that is, right? That's the same because that's the way John described the voice of Jesus Christ in the very first chapter. It sounded like the voice of many waters. I don't know if any of you have ever stood at, you know, the edge of Niagara Falls. And that's a noisy spot. I mean, the, the sound of all that water coming over the falls, it thunders. It's very, very loud. It's hard to have a conversation there with anybody or hear anything at the edge of that fall. It's, it's, it's thundering. Imagine the voice of Jesus Christ when he speaks. When he speaks, that's, that's the way his voice sounds. That voice is going to thunder through the heavens. That's the voice of your Savior, the voice of many waters as of the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne. I'm glad we have a song to sing. I'm glad we're going to be singing in heaven. You're going to be singing in heaven. You're going to, you know, people sing. You should sing out of joy. Right. Real singing isn't motivated by a desire for four part harmony. Real singing isn't motivated to like, oh, it's it's just a noise that comes out of a joyful heart. I mean, that's the kind of singing and that's the only kind of singing that pleases the Lord. If it happens to break into four part harmony, if you happen to be able to carry a tune Okay, well, then that's better, at least better for the people around you. But you know what? It isn't any better for the Lord if we are in four-part harmony. He could care less. It's a song that comes out of a heart that just appreciates being saved. Right? That man that got lifted up out of that pit in Psalm chapter 40, God put a song, a new song in his heart. Right? Even, what does it say? Even... uh, uh, praise unto our God. So it just comes out of a joy. So this new song that we're going to sing before the throne, I have a feeling it will be in four or eight part harmony, but it won't really be because we're trying to make it sound nice. I think it's just going to come out nice finally in heaven. It'll just, we'll be able to sing like we think we sing. We hear it in our ears. We all think that we just sing wonderful you know i you've heard them right the the people that think they have a beautiful voice and i haven't been informed that they don't yet but 
But you know what? In heaven, you're going to be able to let it rip, and it's probably all going to sound, it's going to sound like perfection. But that's not what we have to aim for when we sing in this place. What we ought to aim for here somewhere in one of these signs, I think it says the word loud is in there somewhere, right? On one of these. Is it in there somewhere? Right behind me? Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Make a loud. All right, there it is. Make a loud. Make a loud. All right? So that means the Lord isn't pleased when we you know, he expected if there's if you got a big size joy inside your inside your heart, then it ought to be a big size noise that comes out when we sing. And that's the way they're going to we're going to sing that way around the throne in heaven. Revelation four and five says so. I mean, they are shouting and they're rejoicing and they're singing with a loud voice. It says, and before the four beasts and the elders and no man could learn that song but the 144 and 4,000. So they're going to have their own song. That's unusual, isn't it? They're going to have a song, a special song. I don't know if the church is going to have its own song. I hope First Bible Church gets its own song. And maybe, you know, it'll be, it'll be whatever was precious to us, and maybe nobody else will know that song. We'll have that song. But this 144,000, they have a song of their own. And notice it says, speaking of these 144,000 Jews, which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women. They were virgins, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, obviously at the beginning. It's a past tense, were redeemed. Back at the beginning, when they first show up in chapter 7, this is that moment of their awakening. This was that moment when, as I believe the church is leaving in the rapture, God is immediately beginning a work among the Jewish people. It's the beginning of the awakening of that nation. I mean, God is already, as we've said already many, many times, God is already moving among the Jewish people, bringing them geographically back to that land, but not spiritually back to the Lord yet. I mean, they're gathering in that one place because God needs them in that one place, because that's the place that Jesus Christ is going to return to and reign from. But spiritually, they haven't been drawn back to Jesus Christ yet. They have Their hearts have not turned to the Lord. That veil hasn't been taken off their heart yet. The, their eyes have not been opened yet to the truth. But it will be, I think, beginning at the rapture. And we've talked about why that is. I think in some ways the rapture is a signal in a sense, a sign in a sense. That's why the archangel is in the rapture. The archangel has nothing to do with the church but there he is in the rapture for some reason, the voice of the archangel. And I think that it's that voice of the archangel that awakens this 144,000 right at the very beginning. And they begin as a witness and a testimony to the, to the rest of the nation. So they serve as a witness, but you're going to see it in a second. There's another word in here, and there's a reason that God awakens a small group, relatively small group compared to the rest of the nation of Israel, why God awakens a small group at the beginning and, and then the rest of the nation at the end. Even God doing that is consistent with the way that God works all through the scriptures. Can you think of anything in the scriptures? I mean, maybe you read ahead and you've seen the word already. But can you think of anything in the scriptures that 
where God at the beginning gives a little as a promise of a lot later? Well, through the scriptures, God, God had that way of working. Look at uh, look at the next the rest of the verse. It says, "These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God." So that little group at the beginning. Is, are the first fruits, the first fruits unto God. And I wanted to talk about that tonight with the little bit of time that we have left. The first fruits, the first fruits. The 144,000 are called the first fruits. That is something that's found all through the scriptures. And it has a, it has a blessing for us today, even though these are things that pertain to Israel, yet the fact that God calls this little group the first fruits is, uh, is going to be helpful to us, I think, if we consider this. Let's go back in the Old Testament. I want to show you what the first fruits are. Go back to Exodus chapter 23, first of all. Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23 and verse number 19. We could start there. <clears throat> Exodus 23, look at verse number 19. The first of the first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring into the house of the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not see the kid in his mother's milk. The first of the first fruits of thy land. The first fruits were a, a man plants seed in his field. And if you've, I'm not a farmer, but I mean, I have seen fields grow and the seed doesn't always come up through the ground at a uniform rate. Um, it comes up for the most part, generally all at the same time. But on, in Israel, when a man planted his field, the first evidence that God had blessed that seed, the first of that fruit to come up through the ground before a man could harvest his field, he first had to bring the first fruits of that harvest. Before he could reap, he had to bring an offering and bring that which the first evidence of God at work in his heart, in his life, in his field was holy. And that first evidence of God at work is, was meant by God, it had several purposes. It served as a precedent, because it was the beginning. It served as a pattern, because everything that came up after that was going to be just like that. And it served as a promise. Because that first that came up is just a foretaste of what's coming. And therefore... If a person truly understands that his blessings all come from the hand of God, then when he first begins to see God work and bless and move in his life, remember the first time you got a prayer answered? 
That was the first fruit of the ministry of prayer in your Christian life. Wasn't that first prayer answered precious to you? Do you remember? I remember the first feeling I had of fellowship with Jesus Christ. After hearing about the Lord my whole life, growing up in a Christian home, reading the Bible, knowing about the Lord my whole life, I remember very clearly what it was like at a young age, 22, I guess that's young now, it sure looks like young from where I'm standing, but at the age of 22, finally knowing Jesus Christ for my very own and feeling for the first time that experience of fellowship with Him. Oh, it was sweet. That was the first fruits of fellowship. And that wasn't the last, but that first was precious. That first was holy. That first is kind of like a promise from God of more to follow. That first answer to prayer in your life. Hey, there will be more to follow. Enjoying singing down here and enjoying the fellowship of the saints down here. This is supposed to be a foretaste of heaven. I remember that first feeling of peace in my life after I got saved. I remember what it was like that first night when I could put my head down on a pillow and not worry about what was going to happen tomorrow. I'd never had that experience in 22 years. The first night after getting saved, realizing, I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. I mean, at the time I got saved, I was in the middle of a gigantic mess. My life was in a mess. I didn't get saved, you know, at the top of my game. (laughs) I remember, I think it was when Doug got saved here. He uh, was a little reluctant to get saved because he wanted to get saved at the top of his game. Well, I got saved at the bottom of my game. (laughs) I got saved at a very low point in my life. The worst possible situation a man could have gotten himself in at the time. And in the middle of that mess, Jesus Christ had mercy. He reached out to me, that strong arm of the Lord that reached out with a stretched out arm. He told Israel, I will redeem thee. And God stretched out that arm and he saved me. And I remember that first feeling of peace in my life. I remember how good it felt that night to put my head down on a pillow. And I had no, I didn't even care what was going to come tomorrow. It didn't even matter. I mean, the world could have blown up at midnight and I could have cared less. It wouldn't have mattered if, if everything had just burned. I mean, I was fine. It was just me and the Lord. You know, and then we, we lose that feeling. We lose that. But the first fruit is precious. It's the first evidence of it's the first fruit the first life i guess you could say from that seed you know the seed is planted it's under the ground you know the you know the little kernel breaks open and i don't know how all that stuff happens but the seed starts to grow and for a little while it doesn't break up through the surface of the ground but then there's there's the evidence there's the life it was growing it was working god was we didn't see anything happening for a while, but then, then all of a sudden there's the proof. There's the fruit. And then that plant grows. And, you, and so God expected the children of Israel that when they planted their fields, I guess it had to do with them understanding that the fruit I give you is a blessing. It came from me. If you're going to get anything good in your life, it's going to come from God. And when you and I live every day with that realization... Then you start looking for those good things from the Lord and you start thanking him for those good things and you start appreciating those good things. 
Because when you thank him and offer back to him in a sense with thanksgiving that first fruit, then it makes, if the first fruit is holy, Romans 11 says, then the lump, the rest, is holy. So when you appreciate the little thing at the beginning, guess what? It has a way of sanctifying all the rest. And so this 144,000, God calls them a first fruit because it's a principle that God that God follows all through the scriptures. He wanted the children of Israel to recognize it by offering God back the first fruit. Basically, it was their way of acknowledging, Lord, we see the way you work. We see that if there is any fruit, it's coming from your hand. So when I plant that seed, I have no guarantee. I have no guarantee that it's working until I see the evidence of it. Now here's the evidence of it, Lord. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. I praise you for that. I recognize where that blessing comes from. Sometimes we don't want to rejoice until we've reaped the whole field. (laughs) We're waiting for the whole harvest. We want it all packed away, stuffed in the barn. Then we'll say thank you. That's exactly the opposite of what God wanted us to do. Thank him for that. What was it? Was that Elijah who had to pray for rain? And there was a little cloud on the horizon right, just the size of a man's hand. And when, when Elijah saw that little cloud, okay, basically he said, all right, get ready for a downpour. <laughs> get ready for a downpour. Well, there's no downpour yet. It's just a little cloud way in the horizon. And what does that mean? No, Elijah knew what that meant. It meant the Lord is coming with more. There's more coming. Faith sees in that first fruit the abundance that God has promised will follow. If... I can offer back to him in praise and in thanksgiving that first fruit. Because God, if God didn't get the proper response from the first fruit, then God didn't bless the rest of the harvest. You see what I'm saying? When you don't, you get that little blessing. You're praying for a big, big blessing and God shows you some little indication. Hey, I'm here, I'm working. I'm working. Maybe that big thing didn't get solved yet. Maybe that field didn't get reaped yet. But I'm here. You know what? Right then and there, that first fruit, that little reminder to you that the seed is working, God's Spirit is there, there's fruit. Maybe the whole field hasn't been brought in yet. But God's working. You know how you can, assu- you know how you can ensure that the rest of the field is going to get brought in? You thank God, get on your knees, and you thank Him for that first fruit. You get on your knees and you thank Him for that little rain cloud coming up over the horizon. You thank Him for those first few sprouts coming up out of the ground. Your whole family isn't saved yet. You're the only one. And you say, it looks hopeless. And they don't want to hear anything. But then one day, all of a sudden, a mother or father, you know, happens to listen to one of the verses that you you gave them. Okay, first fruit. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. There's a little evidence. There's There's a little crack there. The Spirit of God is at work. Thank Him for that. Offer that back to God in thanksgiving. Praise Him for what He's doing. Appreciate Him for what He's doing. Because when the first fruit is offered back to God in thanksgiving, then God blessed the rest of the harvest. And when God did not get His first fruit, it was a sure way of spoiling the rest of the harvest. 
See what I'm saying? Or maybe you don't. Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23. Let's just look at some other verses about the first fruit. (laughs) It probably didn't need that much explanation. It's kind of obvious, but anyway. Leviticus chapter 23, uh, verse number 10. Leviticus 23, you know, one of the seven off, one of the seven feast days of Israel, you know, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, so on and so forth, the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the third one was here, Leviticus 23, verse 10, is that speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, when you become into the land, which I give unto you and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest and he shall wave the chief before the Lord to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. All right. Um, so one of the feast days was the feast of first fruits. All right. The feast of, and you know how God did everything significant in the life of Jesus Christ on a feast day. The Lamb of God was slain on the feast of Passover. The Lamb of God uh, was buried on the f- beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread when sin, or leaven, when leaven was put away. And the Lord Jesus Christ arose on the Feast of Firstfruits. He was the first to come out from the dead. The first of more to follow. That first indication of a great harvest that was coming later. You and I are a part of that harvest But that first to come out of the ground was holy unto the Lord and needed to be immediately at the beginning offered back to God in thanksgiving and in faith for what God was going to do later. God said, the first fruit is mine. That's mine, not yours. The first fruit belongs to the Lord. Whether it was the fruit of the ground or the fruit of the womb. It could be the fruit of a womb. The firstborn of their cattle, the firstborn of their sheep belonged to the Lord. It had to be either offered to God or it could be redeemed with money. But either way, um, it had to be offered to God. It had to be offered to God in the form of being slain. Or it could be, if you didn't want to slay it, you could redeem it with silver, bring money and, and you could keep your lamb, keep your sheep, whatever it is. But it had to either be slain or it had to be redeemed. And so, because the firstborn was the Lord's. Um, he said that in Exodus chapter, let's go there. Exodus chapter 30, 13 and verse number 12. So the first fruit and the firstborn are very much the same throughout the scriptures. It has the same purpose, almost has the same meaning. <clears throat> Exodus 13, look at verse number 12. I'm sorry, Exodus 13, verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Sanctify unto me all the firstborn, whatsoever openeth the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and of beast. It is mine. So the firstborn and the first fruit belong to God. And God had a reason in doing this. All the things that God did, everything that he required under the law was simply for the sake of teaching a spiritual lesson. It, was, it always had a spiritual truth behind it and a reason for God doing that. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 26. Deuteronomy 26. Deuteronomy 26 and verse number 1. 
And it shall be when thou art come into the land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, and possesseth it, dwellest therein, that thou shalt take of the first of all the fruit of the earth, which thou shalt bring of the land of thy land that the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall put it in a basket. So obviously it wasn't the whole field. <laughs> you were just bringing, you know, you're going out there, the tree begins to bear fruit. You're going out there and bringing some of that first fruit. Your field begins to bear fruit, so you're bringing some of that first fruit. And whatever it was, you were bringing it to God. And you were bringing it to God with the understanding that you wouldn't have had any fruit if it wasn't for the Lord. It all came from Him. And you're realizing that I need to offer this back to God with an understanding that, Lord, I appreciate what you've given me. I haven't seen the rest of my field produce fruit yet. I haven't seen the answers to all my prayers. But, Lord, I thank you for this one. I thank you for this one, and I know there are more to come. And I want to offer this back to you, Lord, just as a, an offering of thanksgiving and praise. Thank you for being so good to me. And you, you accept it by faith that the rest of the field is coming. You accept it by faith that, Lord, you've given me this because you intend to give me all that. God doesn't give you the first fruit unless he intends to give you the whole field. If God intended to curse the field, you wouldn't get the first fruit. It's an important lesson in that. We sometimes, we don't thank God for those little rain clouds on the horizon after a drought. But God wouldn't send that little rain cloud if he didn't intend to send that gully washer or whatever they call it. <laughs> that big downpour that the earth needs sometimes and just needs to drink in a, a good drink of rain. But God sends the first fruit just to say, would you trust me and thank me and appreciate this that I give you? Would you love me? I haven't given you everything you ever wanted yet, but I've given you this. You'll trust me for the rest. Trust me as if it were in your bank already, in your hand already. Trust me as if it were yours already. Because the farmer, when he saw that field first begin to produce fruit, Basically, it was the promise that God was going to bless the rest of it if he would be grateful for the first fruit. And so God wanted that first, that first fruit to, to be offered back to God. Look at it here again. We'll read the rest of this. It says, um, verse 5, uh, And thou shalt, when the, when the Jews got into the land, this is what the Lord wanted them to do. Bring me the first fruit of your land. Put it in a basket. Bring it to me. Come to the priest. And this is what I want you to say. God even told them what to say. He said, that, verse 5, And thou shalt speak and say before the Lord, A Syrian ready to perish was my father, meaning Jacob. You know, Jacob was, you know, the Jews originally, Jacob was originally, uh, had Syrian blood in him. Laban was a Syrian. So, and so he says, you, you come to the priest and you say this, A Syrian was ready, ready to perish was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became there a nation, great, mighty, and populous. The Egyptians evil entreated us and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage. And when we cried unto the Lord God of our fathers, the Lord heard our voice, looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. And the Lord brought us forth out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. Man, you're getting a lot out of this basket of fruit, aren't you? I mean... Bring a basket of fruit, but with that basket of fruit, you know what he was supposed to do? Remember everything I ever did for you. Amen. That basket of fruit may just be, all right, I know you need the rest of that fruit. 
But that basket of fruit is coming from the same God that parted the Red Sea, brought your whole nation out of Egypt. In other words, that little blessing was to remind you of all that God has ever done. It was just to stir up a heart of gratitude and a heart of praise. And when you bring that to God, you know what you're doing? You're ensuring the rest of the harvest. You're, you're in a sense, sort of holding God to the rest of the blessings that He's already promised. It says, um, and uh, let's see, in verse number 10, this is still part of what the guy was supposed to say. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which thou, O Lord, hast given me. And thou shalt set it before the Lord thy God and worship before the Lord thy God. And thou shalt rejoice in every good thing which the Lord thy God hath given unto thee. And unto thine house, thou and the Levite and the stranger that is among you. You know, that little basket of fruit was supposed to provoke all of that. That's amazing. That's amazing. Go to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. Look at verse number 9. Honor the Lord with thy substance, and with the first fruits of all thine increase. Now, this could, I mean, this might have maybe the first sense as material, you know, as God begins to bless you monetarily as you begin to increase. You know, if, if God blesses you with some kind of financial prosperity, it doesn't have to be billions of dollars. It could just be, hey, a little better position, a little better job, a little better situation, 25 cent raise in your paycheck or whatever it could be. It's an increase. It's the evidence of God just pouring out a little blessing in your life. You know what you're supposed to do with it? The first fruit of that increase. The first fruit of that increase. You didn't wait until you had the house of your dreams. You didn't wait until, you know, you reach retirement. You could put your feet up on that, you know, palatial home. No. That little bit of blessing, that little bit of increase that God had given you in your life. You're not waiting for the whole field to come in, but just every little evidence of God moving in your life. Treat it like a first fruit. That evidence of God blessing the seed of his word. It's bearing fruit in your life. Bring it back to God as an offering of thanksgiving. Honor the Lord with thy substance. You should do it with your money as well. And the first fruits of thine increase. But notice that when you did it with the first fruit, what you were because the sentence isn't done there. It says, so shall thy barns be filled with plenty. You know what you were doing? When you appreciated the little bit that God gives you at the beginning, it's that it ensures the blessing to come. Right? Now, this is talking about the first fruit in a material sense, but the first fruits of all thine increase, so shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. So you see the connection with between appreciating the little bit that God's blessed you with, and God then... Blessing you with more. Can you imagine any reason why God would want to give you more when you're not grateful for the little bit he gave you in the beginning? <laughs> Can you, I mean, is there any reason for the Lord to pour out more blessings in your life when you don't thank him for the ones you have now? You're hoping for God to do something in the lives of your children or in the lives of your wife or your husband or 
in the, in the area of your finances or something. And maybe you're going to sit down and actually thank him and praise him when all your problems are solved and everything is perfect. Well, then you are probably guaranteeing that you're never going to get there. You are probably have just guaranteed yourself that that is never going to happen. Because if you're waiting for every little thing to fall into place and everything to be perfect and then say, okay, Lord, all right, thank you. Now it's finally done. It's all settled. Mm -mm, God doesn't work that way. Thank him for the little steps along the way, the little evidences along the way. The little, the little signs of his presence. The little, hey, I'm still here. Thank him for those. Thank him for the times when, all right, not every problem's been resolved. And there's still a lot of the field that has to be reaped. But God's just saying, hey, here's a little, here's a little handful on purpose for you. Here's, here's just a little reminder to you that I still love you. I'm still here. I'm still God of the universe. I haven't died. I'm in control. You thank him for those things. I think you're ensuring that your barns are going to overflow. Not materially, I'm not saying, but I'm saying your, your life will overflow with more blessings because God sees you appreciate those little ones I gave you. And I think also the converse is true. That when you can't appreciate and don't appreciate and you're impatient and ungrateful for the little indications of God's favor and blessing in your life, you're probably ensuring that that's, that's about all you're going to see. Because that's the way God works. The law of first fruits. It's a law. It's a, it's a spiritual law in the scriptures. Give God the glory, the praise, the sacrifice of your lips. Thanksgiving for that first evidence of his work in your life. And it'll bring more blessings. But if we could go back to the, just you don't have to turn back there, but turn your thoughts, your mind back to the 144,000. They are called the first fruits. Well, if they're the first fruits, it's obviously that that's not any connection to the body of Christ because we were in Christ long before that. So that means it's the first fruit of something, right? What is that 144,000 the first fruit of? It's that evidence, that beginning of the work of God, a promise of a greater work to come. It's a precedent for the work to come. It's a pattern for the work to come, and it's a promise of the work to come. That first fruit is all of that. So the 144,000 are that beginning of the operation of God in the nation of Israel. Well, if they're the first fruit, wow, what is the harvest going to be like? If the 144,000, I mean, what a glorious group of people that is. I mean, morally, spiritually, men that are pure, men in whom there is no guile, it said. I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a quality group of people. I mean, this is, this is an amazing group of people that God has formed to be a witness to him in the earth. And they're only the beginning. They're just a little foretaste of the rest of the harvest. What's the rest of the harvest? Well, Romans chapter 11 describes the rest. Go back to Romans chapter 11 a little bit. And then we're going to just quickly just apply some of the, the principle of first fruits to you and I. But in Romans chapter 11, it mentions first fruit and it also mentions the, the harvest. 
Romans 11, down there in verse number, um, I don't even know if I wrote, I don't think I wrote this down actually, so I may have to just look for it real quick here. Romans chapter 11. Um, first fruit is in this chapter somewhere. Where is it? 16? 16, 16, 16. Okay. If the first fruit... Now, remember what chapter 11 is about. I mean, if you were back here, back in those years, when we were in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, okay? It has to do with the nation of Israel. Why God allowed the nation of Israel in the days of Jesus Christ and in the days of the apostle. Why God allowed them to go into blindness and unbelief. God had a purpose, and there was a pattern in that. So God allowed them to to fall away. He, he permitted it. Because God had another plan that he hadn't revealed to anybody, and that was that he intended to set Israel aside and then go save the rest of the world. And then, co- and then come back to Israel. And come back and return his attention to them. But he hadn't revealed that to any of the Jewish prophets in the Old Testament. It was part of God's secret plans. We were going to preach on secrets last Sunday, and I, I will coming up one of these Sundays soon. But it was one of those secret plans of God. He hadn't discussed it with the prophets, and he hadn't revealed it to the angels. And it was something God was holding very close to his, you know, you know how like you're, when you're playing poker, you, know, you keep your cards real close to you. And uh, it was part of the hidden wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And then God hadn't revealed that he was going to do that. But he allowed Israel to go into unbelief. He allowed Israel to fall because God was going to go save the Gentile world. And he wasn't going to forget his elect people. He was going to come back to Israel and he's about to do that. The clock has come back full circle right now and God's ready to come back to the nation of Israel. But So chapters 9, 10, and 11 are, are dealing with that subject. And here in chapter 11, it says, For if the first fruit be holy... And in this case, it's not talking about the 144,000, but it's actually talking about those Jews that got saved during the time of the gospel preaching of the apostles. There were a beginning. There was a, you know, a, a remnant, a small group that got saved. But the principle is here. If the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. So in other words, if, if the, this is the principle. If God blesses the beginning... He's telling you, I'm going to bless the end. If I bless the first fruit, the lump means the rest of it, the mass, the rest, the harvest. If the beginning is good, if the beginning has the hand of God upon it, if the beginning is holy, then the rest is holy. Right? And it says, if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so, also, so are the branches. And then you get down to the end of chapter 11, and what do you find at the end of chapter 11? You find verses describing, let's just call it the lump, the nation of Israel as a whole, the whole country, the whole nation, being saved at the end of the tribulation. It says, verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in, and so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. All right, so there's the promise that at the end, the harvest is going to be blessed of God. So we see a fulfillment of that in Revelation. The, the first fruits are that 144,000 of those Jewish people that are saved right at the beginning. Um, go to the book of James. Uh, you remember who the book of James is written to? I mean, speaking of 12 tribes, you know, 12,000 out of each tribe, that's the 144,000, right? Uh, book of James. Who are the book, who's the book of James written to? The 12 tribes. 
right? So it's no coincidence that in the book of James, written to the 12 tribes, we find a comment on the first fruit here. Look in James, uh, by the way, James chapter 1, verse 1, you can see it's written to the 12 tribes, right? The 144,000 are the 12 tribes, right? But notice here, it says, uh, verse number 18, chapter 1, verse 18, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. All right? So a confirmation that 144,000 are the first fruits of that harvest, the nation of Israel that's going to come at the end of the tribulation. All right? Well, what about the first fruits as it applies to us? Um, well, <clears throat> and um, we don't have time for all of this. I, I know our hour has already slipped away from us. Let me just. Um, Skip down here through a few things. Well, first of all, it speaks about Jesus Christ being the first fruits of them that slept. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 20. It speaks about, let's go there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. First fruits of them that slept. Jesus Christ, the first one to come out of the grave. Remember, first fruits is a precedent, so he's the first. But first fruits is also a pattern. So, because he lives, we also are going to live. We also have eternal life. The fact that he was resurrected is the promise, not only the precedent and the pattern, but it's also the promise that all of those who sleep in Christ Jesus are going to be resurrected also. He's the first fruit. So the first fruit serves all of those three purposes. He's the first. He's also called the firstborn of many brethren because he's the first fruit. All right. So he's the first fruit. Um, look at it here in uh, where were we? Verse 20. Um, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. All right, so in other words, God, is, God works according to principles that never vary in the scriptures. Jesus Christ was the firstfruit. The precedent, the pattern, and the promise of that same blessing to come in the future. That's how, if you're a child of God, you can rest assured that you're going to live forever. Because your first fruit lives forever. <laughs> that's, the, that's the evidence. That's, that's a verse on eternal security. The principle of first fruits is a great proof for eternal security. Because as He is, so are we. Right? We're complete in Him. I'm in His death, in His burial, in His resurrection. His life is my life. His eternal life is my eternal life. When God said he was going to give you eternal life, all he did was just give you Jesus. Because he is eternal life. If you have him, you have eternal means no beginning and no end. Everlasting means it starts here and never quits. But when you get Jesus Christ, you're not getting everlast, only everlasting life. You got eternal life. That means it goes in both directions without any end because it's a person. Eternal life is a person. It's Jesus Christ living inside of us. And so, He's my life. He is our life. He is, that's why He could say, I am the resurrection and the life. Right? Because He's the first fruits. All right? 
And notice it says, and afterward, verse 23, they that are Christ's, you belong to him, then he's the first fruit of what you're going. Not it, he's the precedent. He's also the pattern. I think it's in Romans chapter 8. He says that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Firstborn, first fruit, same thing. So first fruits is a pattern. That means we are going to be not only resurrected like him, but we will be like him. Be like him. That's a blessing. Remember, the first fruit is just the foretaste, the preview of the rest to follow. (laughs) One last thought on this, I guess, is all we have time for. And that's in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. (laughs) I got... No, this was such a blessing to consider this. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. <laughs> oh, think about this. I don't, I'm, I'm not going to be ad, I'm not going to be able tonight to adequately impress you with this truth. But I, and we don't have time, and I'm not eloquent enough. But there is something really beautiful right here. And if you can go home and get a hold of this, you're going to have something to chew on for the rest of the week. But notice in Romans chapter 8, in verse. Let's just read a couple because it's part of a it's part of a, a context here. Let's see, um, verse twenty-two. For we know that the whole creation, nature, groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. There's a wonderful truth right there. You cannot hear those trees groaning out there, but they are. They have felt the effect of sin and death in this world for six thousand years. And they are longing to be free. The Bible speaks about when the Lord comes, the trees are going to sing. The hills are going to clap. I mean, the mountains are going to, the rocks will cry out. I mean, the whole universe, the creation that God made, God has the power to make it speak. Do you believe that? I believe that. I believe God can do that. I believe in the millennium, you're going to hear some weird stuff. I think you're going to hear some weird and wonderful things. It's going to seem like the land of Oz because the, the creation is not going to be able to contain itself. I mean, you'll just be walking along and some tree will be whistling or something. and The grass will be humming and rocks might just, I don't know what they'll be doing, but nature itself is going to be so happy to be free of the curse. At least in that new heaven and new earth, that'll be the truth. But... The whole creation groaneth, nobody can hear this but God. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also. We groan too. I mean, we're stuck in a sense in this body of flesh for this time being. You ever just gotten up in the morning and happy to be saved but so sick of yourself? You ever been so sick of your own sin? So finished with you. I mean, happy with the Lord, but just so you've just had it with you. Have you ever felt that way? Just wishing that I could just be rid of me and rid of this and Lord, just be with you. I mean, if you've never gotten to that place, I don't know. Stay in the book a little bit longer. Stay in the book long enough to just get sick of you. And, you know, then you've probably been in the book a good amount of time. You stay in this book long enough. You're going to get so sick of you. You're going to be so happy 
thinking about that day when you're going to be rid of this flesh. You're going to be rid of it. Not going to have to worry about those temptations as one brother just struggling with things like we all are and said, you know, I just, how do you get victory over this flesh? You know, the evidence that it's bothering you, the fact that it's bothering you is evidence that you're saved. Because it never bothered me before I was saved. It never bothered me a bit. I loved it. I reveled in it. I enjoyed it. And then I got saved. And little by little, I got more and more sick of it. Just sick of it, longing to get rid of it. And you know what? That day is coming when we're going to finally get rid of it. Nature itself is feeling the same thing. Nature's right with you there. Nature is with you. Nature's groaning and travailing the same way. One of these days, sin and death will be done. And the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God will be running the show. And that day is coming. But notice it says, and we ourselves also, which have, here it is, the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits. Remember, the first fruit means the beginning of God at work. Those first evidences of God at work. Those first little indications that there's greater things to come. You know what you and I have? The, on your greatest day, when the Spirit of God is working in your life, you know what you're experiencing? Just the first fruits. There are greater things to come. There are greater things to come. The fruit that the Spirit of God is that it produces in your life, that fruit of the Spirit, that love, that joy, that peace, that peace. Those things that only God can produce in you are only the first fruits. You know what? Thank God for the first fruits. Thank Him for those things. Thank Him for that evidence of God, God's Holy Spirit at work in your life. Because you know what they are? They're God's just giving you a little taste of, there's a lot better stuff coming, son. There's a day coming when I couldn't even explain it to you now because your brain couldn't handle it if I did. Um, let's end on this. Romans chapter 8, while we were there, just go back to Romans chapter 8. Look at verse number verse number 10. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you and works in you, and you're experiencing the first fruits of that, that first fruits of the Spirit in you, those first little, uh, you know, real evidences that are coming up through the ground. You see God at work, and you, you see a little answer to prayer, and you, you open the Scriptures, and you see the face of your Savior in there, and the Spirit of God shows you some truth. And maybe the year before, that part of the Scriptures was just all gobbledygook to you, and then you're reading through it again, and God just turns a light bulb on, and you see something... Those are the evidences of the Spirit of God working in your life. That first fruit of the Spirit in us. We, If you're saved, you have that. We have that. And it says, but notice here, it says, If the Spirit of, of, uh, Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also, here's the harvest, quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. So one of these days... The Spirit of God that's been working, answering prayer, interceding you for you in you know in the beginning, comforting you when you needed it, showing you your Savior in the Scriptures when you looked for Him, whispering in your ear those Scripture verses that you needed in a moment of trial, holding your hand through every day, just being your companion constantly, teaching you, guiding you, being your teacher, all of that work is just the first fruits. 
That's just the beginning. You could hold the first fruits in a basket. You needed a barn to hold the rest of the harvest. Your barns, it says, would overflow. The first fruits came in a basket. You think about what's coming. It's like uh, all the blessings that we have right now is just in a basket. Man, where do you see what's in the barn? Wait, wait, do you see what's in the barn? But you know what? You got to thank him for what's in the basket. Be grateful for what's in the basket. Be grateful and just render it back to the Lord in praise. When you take a look at what's in the basket. Thank you for that and that and that and that and that and that. Because I know, Lord, that's just a promise of all the rest of it to come. Whew, I can't wait to see the barn. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, Lord God, we thank you for your word. I thank you for my Savior. We thank you, Lord, for the first fruits of your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that that little indication at the beginning, in all of this, Lord, all the blessings of this Christian life, Lord, you said are just the first fruits. And Lord, uh, thank you for what awaits the child of God. Uh, Eye hath not seen and ear hath not heard and neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that you've prepared for them that love you. And, uh, Lord, we anticipate that day when we get to see inside the barn and all the rest of the things, Lord, that you've prepared for us. But, Lord, in the meantime, help us to enjoy these blessings now. Help us to appreciate the little things now. Help us to rejoice in all of these first fruits. And, Lord, uh, thank you for that which is to follow. We're looking forward to it. Thank you for being so good to us. Help us to appreciate what we have and help us to do something with it that would glorify your name. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.